And I was like, you know what? Screw this. I'm not into finishing this program. I have this belief in myself that I want to start a company that I can be successful at it. I don't want to do any more of these stupid courses. So that's why I didn't finish interior design school. And once I left, I very quickly started working on my own. The rest is kind of history. Hello, and welcome back to the Well Now What podcast. I'm your host, Savannah. That clip you just heard was Karen Bond. Karen is an award-winning interior designer, businesswoman, speaker, and YouTube personality. She's the founder and creative director of House of Bond, a luxury interior design firm specializing in restaurants, residential, and boutique commercial properties. Karen is also a star in Restaurants on the Edge, a brand new show on Netflix. With a loyal following on YouTube with over 100k subscribers, Karen shares behind the scenes of running an interior design business. Today, we talk about how she dealt with imposter syndrome at the beginning of her career when she didn't finish design school, how to negotiate and stand your ground with little experience, what she looks for when hiring an employee, and her experience working on a hit Netflix show. I hope you enjoy today's episode. I'm here with Karen Bond. So I've always been a huge fan of Karen's interior design work and her YouTube channel, where she is unapologetically herself and very authentic in her brand. And when I saw that she was starring in the Netflix show Restaurants on the Edge, I knew I had to have her on my podcast. I believe that she serves as a true testament that hard work, taking a risk, and following something that sparks you up inside is the way to achieve success, especially in the moments where you feel uncertain and with what the future holds. So Karen, do you mind sharing your journey before you created House of Bond? How did you get into interior design? Was it always something you wanted to do? Oh, great question. Um, I have to say interior design is not something that I always wanted to do. And in fact, growing up and in university, I actually didn't even know that interior design existed as a career, um, which might sound really weird, but I didn't know that. I knew growing up that I always wanted to do something creative and I wanted to have my own business. And I knew that from like the age of five. But when I went to university, I started off at UBC here in Vancouver and uh, that was in 2000. And I was really pushed by my mother to go to university, get a degree. And that was just kind of the path, you know, the expected path that I would follow, even though I really was keen on going to an art school. So while I was at university, I ended up just finding myself to be really locked. Like, I will not say that university was a fun time for me at all, because going to university and taking things like physics and English, and it just wasn't anything that I was like super interested in or that inspired me at all. And so the way that I navigated university was, you know, taking courses that somehow piqued my interest remotely, um, which ended up being a philosophy degree. And I combined that with a German major because I have family who lives in Germany. And I graduated 
with this double major completely lost. Like I was so removed from my creativity, which is, you know, like a a core value of mine. And I hadn't taken any business courses or anything like that. So when I graduated, I had no idea as to what I wanted to do with my career at all. And I ended up packing up my Honda Civic at the time. I had like a little Honda Civic hatchback. I threw my entire life into that hatchback and drove to Calgary. I roomed with my best friend who I had gone to high school with and ended up landing a job while I was in Calgary doing kind of like furniture sales. And the the company that I worked for did custom furniture designs and they did in-house consultations. And that was how I got introduced to interior design. So I kind of fell into it. Like it definitely was not a planned course. um, And it definitely wasn't something that I, you know, grew up having a passion for. And I read that you didn't actually finish design school. So did you ever experience imposter syndrome at the beginning of your career because you hadn't completed it? Oh my gosh, big time. I love that you read that. (laughs) Big (laughs) time. Yes. So, you know, after this experience in Calgary and sort of getting my palette wet with interior design. And I, I knew I didn't want to stay in Calgary because it was a, just a completely different lifestyle than what we have on the West Coast. So I very quickly moved back to the West Coast and decided on a whim to enroll myself in interior design school. So I took up some interior design courses at BCIT and was like in disbelief that this was school because I was doing color theory and you know, it was so creative compared to this really difficult degree that I had just finished at UBC. And I loved it. I loved doing the interior design courses. But, you know, throughout that time, I've always been a really hard worker and I've always been very career focused. So even though I had enrolled myself in these courses, I was really working on also building my career and I was gaining a lot of work experience and um, working for some great companies. I was doing these courses part-time and towards the end of the certificate program, I had a, I had a teacher that actually didn't give me a passing grade that was high enough to go into, uh, like to continue on without redoing the course. And I was like, you know what, screw this. I'm not into finishing this program. I have this belief in myself that I want to start a company that I can be successful at it. And I don't want to do any more of these stupid courses. So that's why I didn't finish interior design school. And once I left, I very quickly started working on my own. And um, the rest is kind of history. But to answer your question and go back to imposter syndrome, absolutely. I mean, I think I struggled for the first couple of years really going, who am I to call myself an interior designer? Who am I to be selling my services as an interior designer? I haven't even finished design school. Like, who am I to have my own interior design business? And it was something that I actually really struggled with for a few years. And I know that you've mentioned in the past that in order to be successful when starting a business, you need to have three things. So customers, cash, and credit. So how did you first get your first customer? How did you also get financing? So do you mind taking me at the beginning when you when you landed your first customer? My first client on my own was a nightclub owner. 
And I was hired to not even redo the nightclub, but just redo the bathrooms because they were disgusting. (laughs) This was a nightclub called Lola's and it was in Kitsilano right on um, 4th Street in or 4th Avenue in Kitsilano. And the bathrooms really needed an overhaul. And I was so excited that I could potentially work for a client on my own that I left my then job to go do this. Um, And I was working for a really small interior design outfit at the time. I think there was like myself and two other staff and the owner. So I left that job, started working for this person, and I got connected to this bar owner through my boyfriend at the time, actually, because he worked in the restaurant industry. So that's really how I got started. I did this little bathroom reno for them. It went really well. They had another location, another restaurant that they wanted to design and asked me to come and do that with them. That project never ended up getting off the ground, even though we had fully designed it. But by the time that we got to the permitting phase, the project was just way bigger and would require way more capital than they had at the time. So just as we were filing our permits, they pulled the plug. And for me, that was devastating because that was the first time that I had designed a full restaurant. And I was so excited to move forward with this project. But what happened was during the design process, I got connected to an architect um, and some engineers that were working on the project. And then that architect later invited me to do a project with him. So that's kind of how I got my business going. I mean, it was super slow going in the beginning. And I mean, I didn't have any money. Like I didn't have any money saved. I had, you know, gone through five years at UBC and, you know, had been working and then doing my course, my interior design courses part-time at BCAT, but I certainly didn't have any like capital saved to invest in my business. So the way that I kind of got it going was credit card. I had a credit card and that's how I would buy like paper and supplies and sort of like float myself. And it is the worst way to float yourself because, you know, you're paying 18% interest or 21% interest or whatever it is, but that's all I had at the time. And the thing with me is that I've always been very okay with risk. I'm not risk adverse at all. And I think that that attribute, that natural characteristic had actually helped me start my business and keep going. Mm-hmm. And have you ever taken a risk and it actually ended up failing? And how did you deal with that failure? Yes, I definitely took a risk and it and failed really hard. I mean, the biggest example that I would, that I come back to all the time was, so through these years and I, you know, my boyfriend and I, again, he was in the, the restaurant industry and he was a chef. And as I was getting my little interior design business going, he was also kind of getting his own consulting business going. And he was consulting for different restaurants, consulting on their menu, helping them to get open. And uh, he would move from restaurant to restaurant. So we teamed up and started offering our services as a package. Like he would come in and advise on the food, consult on the menu, consult on their operation. And I would come in and then consult on the interior design. And that led to us opening the Fresh Bowl restaurants. So there's two locations. There's one in Yaletown and there's one in Yastown. And the Yaletown location was a renovation 
that went really well. The owners were super, super happy with it. And my boyfriend really wanted to get into the franchise game. So he really pushed for that Gastown location and he pushed to be an owner in that location. And because we were partners, inevitably, we ended up being owners together. So the Gastown location, we designed it, you know, we found the contractors to build it out. He did the menu. We got the place open. We had put up our condo at the time as collateral for this business. And the business totally failed. We opened the doors after all of this hard work and investing all of this time, this money, our resources into this, working like day and night, long hours, you know, getting this place open. When we finally opened the doors, it was great to see people were coming in, but not enough to sustain the capital that we had put into it. When I think back to that feeling, it was this incredible sinking feeling that we were completely out of money at this point and pretty much completely out of energy as well. And we were still having to fund the business to an extent, to a large extent. That was one of the times when I first experienced like really sleepless nights. I would go to bed and feel sick to my stomach about what we had done. I sort of felt like completely in despair on how to get out of this situation. And eventually what happened is that we ended up selling our ownership to the Yelltown owners um, and selling it at a loss because that was the only way to get out of it. And I later had to then sell my condo in order to pay off all that debt. So it was a crazy like business failure, really. But I say that and at the same time, you know, having gotten through it, it was also one of the best business educations that I could have ever gone through. In fact, I feel like going through that experience made me learn so much about partnership. It made me learn so much about like contracts and agreements, you know, then to lose all that money. And I think, I can't remember what the exact number was, but I think, you know, it was like $250,000 that I found myself in debt after all of this. And, you know, that that's a huge chunk of money, but fast forward all of these years later, you know, you, I can stomach a few more zeros than that. And so you kind of have to go through those experiences to make it through the other side and to be able to weather things that are bigger and greater. Right. Yeah. And I really enjoy your YouTube platform, especially your days in the life of an entrepreneur, because it's very authentic. You really show the challenges, like the ups and the downs of it. And I know that you posted a video on negotiating. So um, do you have any advice on kind of continuing that? Like, how do you stand your ground and your worth when you're negotiating? So talking about money can be awkward, especially when you're just starting a business. So how do you kind of Mm -hmm. show up and know that you've earned your spot at the table? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, And I will say that I love that you're referencing some of the, you know, the older entrepreneurial videos. I had so much fun making those videos. And I'm so happy that I actually did turn the camera on and start documenting my entrepreneurial journey when I did. So I think some of those videos were probably, I don't know, four years ago. They're a little bit older. And it's like, I love that you're referencing them though, because it, it's just so much confirmation of like how you really do evolve as an entrepreneur. But to answer your question, the, how do you feel like you've earned your seat at the table when you're negotiating and how do you stand your ground? 
I've learned that one of the best ways to negotiate is to be super informed about your business. So when you know how much things cost, like your service or your product costs, and you can break it down, you know what your bottom line is. And so that's how you sort of get out of a scenario where you're underselling your services or like if someone is, you know, grinding you down and really wants a discount, for example, when you know you've reached that point where like, look, if I go any further than this, it's now going to cost me money and it's not worth it to do that. Like that's a huge tool for being able to sit at the table, as you say, and stand your ground. In the beginning, that's really hard. Like I think anybody that's starting a business, it's really hard to, unless you're a seasoned entrepreneur, it's really hard to know what your costs are, right? Um, And you're sort of like learning as you go. You kind of take a job, maybe they're paying you $2,000 and next time you take a job and maybe it's $5,000. And then you sort of like learn by doing and then you go, oh my God, I I thought I was going to be able to like bang out this $2,000 job, you know, in a few weeks, but that actually took me four months and that's not enough money for four months. And so you kind of like learn as you go, but the more you understand the inner workings financially of your business, the better you are at negotiating. And how has your role changed from when you first started to now? Are you still hustling and still doing a lot of business development or are you working more on interior design or are those tasks more delegated to your team? Yeah, my role has changed a lot. Um, I mean, it's such an interesting time with all the COVID stuff that's happening right now. So I think, you know, everybody is just trying to navigate this new normal as we're calling it and this new landscape for business, which is really, really weird. But generally my role has changed in that I definitely oversee the interior design projects and I'm very closely tied to the creative, but in terms of any of the technical execution, even any of the project management and scheduling, I'm very removed from that now. Uh, which is different than when I first started. I mean, when I started my business, I was the person that was sitting at the table and drafting and, you know, sometimes hand drafting and doing and practically sleeping under my desk to get drawings and projects at the door. So that's changed a lot. And then even when it comes to business development, I think when you are the owner, often you are the one that is doing the most business development. But the way that's done has definitely changed and I do have support. So there are team members inside House of On that help with inside sales. And that's great. It's it's amazing to watch your company kind of evolve and grow that way. And it's so much fun to see other people taking on tasks that maybe you were doing for so long. Nice. And when was that moment when you realized to yourself with your company, like, wow, I've made it? Was it a specific project that really resonated with you or was it a a specific moment? You know, it's so funny. I was just talking about that, like the, wow, I've made it. I don't know. To be honest, I don't know that I even have that feeling. Well, like maybe a little bit now, wow, I've made it. But I don't think that there was ever a specific moment in my business that I did feel that way. Like, Having a service-based interior design business is really tough. It There's a lot of moving parts, not just with a project itself. And by that, I mean like, 
you know, you're dealing with so many different vendors and so many different contractors and different trades. There's so many people that are attached to just one project, but then you also have like your internal team and, you know, there's deadlines and timelines and budgets. They're always shifting and moving. And so it's a really tough business to manage and to refine. I think it, you know, (laughs) a lot of people probably don't want to hear this, but I really think it took like getting close to the 10 year mark where I was able to kind of feel like, okay, you know, I can look around and feel like people are doing their job. People know what they're doing. People are really qualified I'm supported in a lot of areas of the business. Um, and I feel really good about the way, where the operation is, but it's a long journey to refine it for sure. With everything going on, but also in general, how do you as an entrepreneur continue to stay so motivated and inspired? <laughs> well, I stay motivated and inspired by really doing creative things. Like I just, you know, we started this conversation kind of on that note where I am definitely like a creator and an artist at my core. And so as long as I'm doing that, you know, at least 50% of my time, I get really excited. And that's also the reason why I think I've had a lot of success with my YouTube channel and social media is because it's another creative outlet for me that I just genuinely love. Like I really love making content the same way that I really love designing projects. And I really love connecting with an audience the same way that I really love connecting with a client. And so being really closely aligned with my core as a creator and an artist is what keeps me going. I've definitely had years though in my business where I would say about at the five year mark where I kind of hit like a road bump and struggled for a couple of years. It was around the same time that I was started to dabble in social media, but my business, I had grown it to a point where, you know, I had some good systems and some good processes and I had a team um, and I had some great clients and, you know, was doing some really big projects, but it was still small enough. And the talent that I had, although they were really great designers, I didn't have anybody else helping me with the actual business. And so I felt like I was a full-time, you know, project manager and operator. And it really was draining. Like that, my motivation to keep going really kind of left. And it was a hard time it was hard to wake up in the morning and then want to go to the office. It was because I just wasn't enjoying the type of work that I was doing. And I think that that is exactly what led me to sort of pivot and start looking at social media um, because I was just so hungry for that creative outlet. Um, And when you're a small business and you know, you've got like five people or four people, I mean, you can't really afford to have operator. You can't really afford to have someone help you run your company. Where would you even find that person? So that was the dilemma I had, but social media really gave me a creative outlet. And then I was just really excited talking about entrepreneurship. Like I, I love that I had a platform to connect with other people and sort of share my ideas. And it's funny because I think that some of the entrepreneurial videos on my YouTube channel are probably just as highly viewed as the some of the very interior design focused videos. Yeah. And do you think your social media platform helped grow your business? Because you do have over a hundred K subscribers and are most of your clients coming from referrals or are they just finding you um, online? It's shifted quite a bit. So 
now I think there's definitely high visibility because of my social media, but that took a really long time. And I would say, you know, five or six years ago, still the way that I found or clients would find me or I would find them is through Google or through me cold calling. And I still believe in cold calling so much. That is probably a sales tactic and a business development tactic that I will never give up because it's so, so, so effective. But it took a really long time for it to shift and for me to actually start getting calls from my social media. I'd say it's probably been in the last like two or three years where that's happened a lot more, but, and and less so with Google now, funny enough, and, and more so through referrals. But I think it's only going that way more and more. Like I definitely think that social media now is one of the strongest marketing um, strategies that you can have. And I definitely think that your social media can generate leads. It's not the only thing that for me anyways, it's not the only thing that I would rely on, but it's certainly a big part of generating clients. No, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And when you're hiring an employee, what are some of the skills that you or personality traits or skills that you look for when you're hiring someone? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question because my HR protocols have changed so much over the years. When I am hiring an employee now, and I would have never said this until very recently, now when I'm hiring an employee, I'm really looking for two things, fit and expertise. It's super important to me that anybody that comes into the company that's new has a certain amount of expertise that they can bring to the table or like experience unless we're, you know, actively seeking a junior or someone that we're looking to train. But that's changed a lot because my hiring practices used to be all about fit. Do I see something in you? And can I cultivate talent? Like that is something that also gets me really excited. So a perfect example of that would be little D or Diane, who now has been working with me for three years. She's the one that handles all the content behind my YouTube channel and all, all of our video content. And when I first met her, I mean, she was totally green. She had graduated from university um, had, you know, done a business degree, was work, living at home with her parents and um, ha- didn't have much work experience at all. And all she had been doing was making home videos, but she made a video for me and I could tell instantly that she was a great storyteller. And I was like, okay, you know what? The technical part can be learned. I'm going to hire you for your storytelling and let's see where this can go and let's cultivate this. You know, it's grown so much over the the last three years. And now I can't imagine her not being part of the team. Um, She's almost like family to me. So that would be an example of the way that I always used to hire was looking for talent, seeing it, and then wanting to cultivate it. But now, you know, my company is a lot more sophisticated. And now I, I don't even like being the person that has all the answers and definitely don't want to be the person that has all the answers. So I like hiring people that have experience and expertise who have way more answers than I do. Okay. And I I just want to quickly touch on the show Restaurant on the Edge. Mm -hmm. So how did you kind of get into that? And also, were you still working on your projects with your company, House of Bond, while doing this? And how did you balance that with all the traveling? Yes, totally. It was crazy. It was 
such a crazy, crazy um, 2019 year for me. Well, the way that I got into it is kind of the same way that I built my business. It was a slow burn getting into it. For as long as I wanted to have my company, or as long as I have had my company, I have always wanted to work in television. And I dreamed of having some sort of interior design related TV show. And what I did was I just called up producers. I can't remember how long ago this was, but this was years ago. And I called up producers again, just a cold call, had gone for coffee, you know, met a few around Vancouver and said to them, you know, like, I really want to do a TV show. This is what I'm thinking. And the feedback that I kind of got across the board was like, well, that's great. But, you know, design shows aren't really that hot right now. You know, HGTV had kind of gone through this cycle where design shows were really big. And then that sort of evolved into like, I think, real estate shows. And then it kind of morphed into construction shows. But the advice that I was getting was that, you know, TV is really cyclical. And so even though design shows aren't hot right now, keep doing what you're doing. And eventually you'll get a call to do a design show. Well, this pursuit led me to filming some of my own content, sending it out to producers in Toronto. I think I even flew myself to Toronto at one point to meet with a couple of different producers there. Like this was all self-funded and this was all self-initiated. As I was doing this and started to make more and more content on my YouTube channel, it kind of evolved to then me getting a call from one of the producers that I had met with in Toronto that said, okay, hey, we're ready to um, maybe pitch you out to a few networks. Are you interested in doing a design show? And I was like, oh my God, yes, are you kidding? So I signed an agreement with them and continued making my own content along the way. And this turned into a five-year period where I was signed with six different production studios, all with the intent of getting something to a network and off the ground. All the while, me really still working on my own content. And I started getting more calls from producers around the world, really. You know, they'd call and say like, hey, we think your YouTube channel is really great. We would love to pitch you to HGTV. And I would say like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm already signed with you know, somebody else. So this went on, like I said, for a five-year period until I got to the point where I was like, okay, you know what? I'm done with all this. This has been a long, long road. And I think I'm having more success with my YouTube channel than I am with any of these producers. So I'm just going to stick with my YouTube channel. And it just so happened that as soon as I made that decision, I get a call it's a number from, it's a Beverly Hills number. And I just kind of looked at it and rolled my eyes. And I was like, I bet this is another producer. I answer the call and she's like, oh, you know what? I found you through one of the casting agencies you'd worked with. And I've got a show. It's a restaurant show. I shouldn't tell you this, but it's going to Netflix. Uh, we're filming in a couple months. We're just looking for the designer. Are you interested? And I was kind of like, I don't know, you know, send me some more information. I'll take a look at it. And I went home that night and my family was like, what? Are you crazy? This is going to Netflix. You have to do the show. My husband was like, are you kidding? You have to do this. I was like, whoa, why is everyone making such a big deal about this? But once I slept on it, I kind of woke up the next morning and thought, wait, this has already gone to a network. And this is what I had been trying to do for the last five years. So the network is already there. They already have a production schedule. They already have the two other hosts. If I say no to this, they're just going to get another designer and 
go forward with someone else. So I might as well say yes. And that's kind of how it went down. I said, yes, we signed agreements in like eight weeks. And I started filming, I think a month after my agreement was signed, there's the shoot schedule started in January, 2019. And then I spent seven months on the road flying to, you know, 13 different locations. I would be on the road for like nine or 10 days and then home for usually about four or five and then back on the road for nine or 10. So it was a wild schedule. And I still had all my projects that I was, you know, running and relied very heavily on my team while I was filming. And even when I was filming, I would do, you know, a shoot day and then I would go back to the hotel and order room service. And, you know, if the time change would line up, then I would be on my phone probably from, you know, like 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. my time and would spend my time on the phone with my team and answering questions and, you know, still kind of doing my my job at home in Vancouver and then would wake up the next day and do it all over again. So it definitely was a crazy time. I think if I had kids, there's no way I would have been able to do that. <laughs> yeah, but it was such a wonderful show. Like I thought it was super well produced and I learned about so many different like little towns and cities that I never would have thought of. Like in Mazoka, Ontario, like the first episode, I was like, whoa, this yeah. is so beautiful. I never really yeah. thought about it. So I definitely yeah. thought it was a really good show. Yeah. And just the last question to wrap things up. So what are the three things you kind of wish you knew before starting your business? Three things that I wish I knew before starting my business. That's a great question. I feel like if I I could go back and tell, you know, my younger self, give my younger self some advice, I would say, just trust that it will happen. And I say that because it definitely was a way longer and way harder road than I could have ever expected. And I think it's like that for, you know, a lot of businesses, you don't realize like how tough, how stressed, how much it's going to be all consuming. And I think that if you did know that you probably wouldn't go into it, but I would say, you know, just trust that it, it will happen. I also wish I knew that it like had really known that it was going to take a lot longer. So it's not like you start a business and then in two or three years, you're like killing it. And I mean, some people are sure they, they, you know, launch a product and it does amazing or I don't know, in tech, sometimes that happens. But I think that that's really the rarity. Like, I think it just, you know, step by step, kind of brick by brick, you're building a building and, you know, it's day by day. It's like a slow build. So I think I wish I knew that it would take longer. And looking back, I would probably tell my younger early entrepreneur self, just have fun. Don't take it so seriously. I mean, I think early days, you know, you're just trying to (laughs) get, you know, like make enough money to support yourself that month or make enough money to support your employees that month or everything just, it, it feels really stressful in the beginning. I, it's like that for everyone. I mean, that's what business is, right? And that's what being an entrepreneur is, is that you have to carry all these things on your shoulders and you have to figure it out and there's no rules. There's no formula. So I would probably tell my earlier self just to have more fun with it. I can do that now. Like I can have a lot of fun with it now, but mm-hmm. in the early days, I, I think I could have had more fun. 
and that was Karen Bond. You can find her on YouTube and Instagram at Karen Bond to see behind the scenes of being an entrepreneur. Make sure to also check out Restaurants on the Edge on Netflix, but I wouldn't recommend watching it on an empty stomach. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review if you can. Thank you to everyone who has supported me with my journey thus far. I never thought I'd be able to let alone start my own podcast, but also to connect with so many amazing people. Tune in for next week's episode.